Hey, this is Jonathan here with Alexis on the First Year Project. Hey, y'all, it's Alexis, host of First Year Project, a podcast highlighting the good, the bad, and the integral aspects of the first year experience. Here with me today, I have student, social justice advocate, and humorist slash Twitter beast, Jonathan, also known as I'm From Raleigh. We're talking about first year experiences being comfortable in your identity as a black individual in spaces that don't necessarily encourage doing so. From his upbringing and his experiences at Morehouse and Harvard to his love for future, we'll be talking about it all today. Stay tuned. So how have you been? What's been going on lately with you? Good. Chilling. I'm just trying to survive these last few weeks of the semester and make it to graduation. Uh, nothing much besides that. Awesome. Now, I know that you're also involved in uh, Trap Karaoke. Yeah. So I saw on Twitter that it, it had a collaboration. Can you can you tell the folks about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was our first ever um, collaboration with a brand. Um, we partnered with Jordan Brand. And so um, since Wednesday, um, so this Friday night was their Jordan Brand Classic, which brings together the top high school basketball players in the country for a big like showcase basketball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so under our, you know, partnership, what we did was, um, they actually set up a pop-up store of Jordan brand merchandise. They had like this interactive Jordan station and they had given out free haircuts and free food and all this other great stuff while you're like shopping for Jordan merchandise. And one of the things they had going on was us doing a live trap karaoke set from the store. Um, and it was amazing. People came out and participated, uh, put on for their boroughs. Um, and then, um, on Friday night at the game, we actually did trap karaoke in Barclay arena um, during timeouts and during intermissions at the games That's dope. during the uh, men's games um, and then we did a competition um, at the end of the game while they were set up for the concert so really really cool um, great experience and all um, and something I think we're looking forward to doing in the future as well what I realize is I know what trap karaoke is I'm yeah. sure many do but yeah. can you just tell us a little bit more what exactly is trap karaoke and how yeah. did it all come about so to put it in the most simple way possible. Um, it's karaoke with hip hop music. Um, and we kind of specialize in deep trap cuts. Um, so this idea came about when I was talking to, um, the, who we recognize as the founder, Jason, um, Mawat. um, we were talking last summer about how basically karaoke was whack and often leaves minorities and young black people in particular with like very few options of songs that mm-hmm. we like to perform. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the super white corporate settings that we both found ourselves in and we wanted more. And so, we talked about this idea of hip hop karaoke and I came up with the name trap karaoke and Jason kind of like disappeared for a couple weeks and then came back like, yo, this is happening. We're doing it. And we did our first show on the Lower East Side um, like last August. Um, and since then, we've done shows across the country, sold out shows in L.A., um, Oakland, Chicago, Atlanta, D.C. Um, we're going back to D.C. in two weeks to do Broccoli Fest. Um, and we're also doing a show the night before Broccoli Fest on the Friday night. So it's just taken off. Really excited about it. Um, and it's amazing what happens when you connect with other young people who are like minded and kind of put your dreams to paper and plan it and make it happen. Absolutely. I actually uh, for my job, maybe a few months ago, mm-hmm. we went to karaoke. Okay. <laughs> Was that like this like Asian spot? Yeah. yeah so yeah. imagine like um, like Biggie Smalls mm-hmm. playing and like Asian videos in the background. Yeah. 
yeah, it was so confusing. So that yeah, uh, it's, it's funny through this whole thing, we've actually been learning a lot about the karaoke market as well, trying to become like students of the process. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the vast majority of karaoke joints in America are ran and owned by Asians. And we were thinking like, we don't know that many. We didn't know we couldn't identify any like black owned karaoke just joints. Like yeah. what we're doing is live performances. We were thinking like, what if there was actually like a, tr- a karaoke like setup mm-hmm. that was catered to like a kind of hip hop young minority audience um, and it just doesn't exist and so um, yeah it's just interesting good for y'all starting that yeah, that's awesome yeah, I yeah. hope to I hope to go to one yeah yeah let me know yeah, yeah it's, gonna, a lot of, sure. it's a lot of shows coming up over these next few months so yeah let me know. nice yeah. like how would you describe yourself or define yourself and like what you do and why you do it oh man oh if I'm could reduce it to one word it's blessed um and undeservingly so um i don't think anything about me um as an individual is extraordinary i think i've been blessed to have throughout my life the support of family and friends to a level that i can't even put into words and so at every juncture i think in like you know in life they're like potholes and you can see it um in your own life and the life of those around you like where they drop off where school work life becomes too hard and they kind of lose their balance and fall off and it's been like every time i've gotten to that point in my life there's been a text or a phone call or uh hey you trying to hang out or mm-hmm. you know my parents or you know my grandparents just being there for me and I think that's like what has propelled me at these junctures and I think a lot of people think like you know like once you get to like a Morehouse or I came here for ed school here um, as in oh, Harvard? Harvard yeah I went mm-hmm. to Harvard ed school before I came to the law school and that year was um like one of the lowest years of my life I was just going through oh, so man. much and I was um adjusting to school and to Cambridge and to the Northeast and all mm-hmm. these new things um and just dealing with a lot of other stuff and it was cool to have like you know and you know you see Facebook and like Twitter and stuff are highlight reels so if you just yeah. went off my Facebook or, or Twitter you think like this guy wakes up every morning with a smile on his face mm-hmm. and listens to future and <laughs> goes about his day. Goes to and that's just, not, that's just not it. Um, <laughs> I think a great way to think about it is like, yeah, like Twitter is like, uh, or Facebook is like a highlight reel. And why would, why would I want to put out into the world all the things that are troubling me in that type of fashion? Yeah. Um, what, what good would that bring to someone else? Especially when it's the type of things that you're still processing through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, all of that to say, it was during those times that I had people who were going beyond what they saw on my social media and reaching out and making sure everything was okay. And I could say, well, you know what? It's not. Like, let me talk to you about this yeah. and having those people to help me through. So that's the way I think of myself. I, I think that um, I get a lot of attention and, you know, things like this for, you know, being funny and saying funny things or, I mean, for academic achievements and success. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that I'm here or I'm able to be the the funny person I like to be without the other people around me supporting me. That's dope. Yeah. So speaking of that, I know you're from Raleigh. Where, yeah. where exactly? Like what neighborhood? And yeah, yeah. how would you say, uh, I guess, your upbringing and like your community has kind of developed who you are today? Yeah. A lot of that has to do with why I went to ed school, um, why I ultimately went to law school. Um, so I'm from yeah Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital, right smack dab in the middle of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from like the southeast side of Raleigh, which is like the blacker side. Of, every town has like the blacker yeah, the part. Blacker every, side. every town that isn't homogeneous has like a blacker side and a whiter side. Mm-hmm. And so that pretty much is it for Raleigh. Um, 
Um, and so going when I went through K through eight, um, I went to schools on the predominantly white side of town, mm -hmm. even though I lived on the black side um, because I was really sick. I had asthma and some other stuff going on. Mm. And the doctors um, told the district I needed a transfer so I could be closer to the hospital and to where my parents worked. Wow. So it was that me, serious. Yeah, it was that serious. So it put me on the, the white side of school. So I went to the best schools that the county had to offer um, K through eight. Meanwhile, I was growing up with playing sports with going to church with uh, playing in the yard with all of my you know, black friends on my side of town. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all relevant. I'll get to it, why it's relevant. Um, so yeah, I went through K through eight like that. Um, I did okay in school. Um, I think it's Gloria Ladson Billings. I was at an education, she's a professor, I went to this education conference and she talked about how um, black parents specifically like to send their kids to predominantly white schools um, to get a better education. And what she said is they leave well-educated, but they don't leave well and yeah. what she was talking about was kind of the trauma that sometimes black kids go through in these predominantly white settings where mm -hmm. um, they're not valued, where they're not respected, where they're not um, affirmed. Um, and that's a lot of what happened to me, especially in middle school. Seventh grade was like the roughest year of my life. Um, I think, you know, especially, you know, being able to reflect on it now, I recognize that I was dealing with what I can only describe as depression. Mm. Um, I was getting picked on a lot. I had like something like 20 something absences in seventh grade. Oh, wow. um, it was because we literally pull up to the school and I just start crying and my mom would be like I'm the, like I'm not letting you go into the school and she'd cry with me and she'd just drive off and we'd go to her job for the day or my wow. godmother would come pick me up and it was just that bad and um, all that to say I really struggled um, I keep a picture on my phone of my 7th grade report card because I had like all D's C's and F's mm. uh, and I just got socially promoted to the 8th grade where I did slightly better but yeah it was just a really really rough time um, in this predominantly white school and then high school came and I had kind of grown out of my asthma and so now I'm going to school on my side of town and school goes from being you know 75 to 80% white to like 90% black and mm -hmm. here it is first day of school I'm meeting new cousins I didn't even know I had and <laughs> everything's a party and everything I just felt like I could finally be myself and I was comfortable being myself. Um, and so, yeah, high school for me was just like a really, really great time. I went to a very low income, um, low performing. And I, I use that distinction because especially in education, a lot of people, uh, when they talk about schools, and especially minority schools, they're quick to call them low quality. Exactly. And I think there's a difference between quality and performance. I think I went to a very high quality school um, with a lot of friends and a lot of teachers who cared about me. Um, but as far as performance, you can't really argue with the test scores that come out of my high school when mm -hmm. I was there. Um, mm -hmm. And now um, it's a very low performance school um, in relation to the other schools in the county. Um, and so, but I excelled there. Um, but that's where the story kind of connects. Um, what I saw by the time I graduated was that a lot of my friends um, weren't on the level that I was on as far as academically. Okay. And so very few of my friends even went to college. Um, even smaller percentage went to a four-year college. Um, and this is not just my friends, really. It's just the people at my high school, um, what very low college attendance rate, um, college graduation rate now looking back. I mean, I always told myself when I get some real time, I'm gonna go through the yearbook and get the actual statistics and like throw them in the district's face. Like, look how you neglected this whole school. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that was largely my experience. And I'll never forget one particular experience. It was during our uh, career day. Um, and I was so excited because I still had friends, my white friends on the other side of town. And they were telling me, you know, like Duke and UNC and all the local big colleges are going to come to your school and they're going to tell 
tell you about their school and give you applications. And I'm like, yeah, this is gonna be great, right? So I'm like all excited for this day because I'm I'm a nerd and I'm excited about college and all that stuff. And I get there and the only people there are community colleges, uh, the job corps and like all branches of the military. That's um, crazy. And so I was obviously very upset and I couldn't, like I didn't, I didn't been to ed school. I didn't know much about education theory or what was going on. I was just kind of, you know, being acted upon. I didn't know what was going on around me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I talked to my counselor and I was like, yeah, what's going on? Like, why is it like this? And she said, well, I don't know if you remember, but in ninth grade, we had you fill out these forms to say whether you wanted to be on the technical or the college route. Um, and most of your stu- most of your peers put down the technical in your class, put down the technical. And, and what that meant was on that sheet of paper, it said that, and so this is tracking. It said that, yes. um, you know, you can either do this track, which has four Englishes and only three maths and no foreign language, or you can do this other one that has all the English, four years of math. Oh, wow. And so, and when you see it like that, and you're a 15 year old, a lot of people weren't turning these parents, these forms into their parents. I know for a fact, most of my friends filled them out themselves and mm-hmm. signed for their parents' signature. And that ultimately affected their whole life trajectory. So where here it is, senior year, most of them didn't even have the credits necessary to go to a college or the like classes or the classes yeah. Yeah, to go to a college and then also in turn it was hurting the whole school because colleges are like alright it won't even really be worth our time to go to this school because mm-hmm. there's not enough kids who are even eligible to go um, so that's when I really put everything together I was like this is just really unfair it's not right um, I knew that my uh, relative success and my ability to go to college had a large part to do with me being lucky and lucky in that kind of lucky and unlucky that I was sick and that I could go to these great schools, kindergarten through eighth grade that really like instilled the fundamentals. As we know, like in education, those are the most crucial. Like early so on is the important. most crucial. Yeah. And I got what I needed from schools that were serving students on that side of town. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my friends went to schools on my side of town where they weren't. Um, and so that's where I started to think of it, of it from like a more of a justice lens like all right beyond like this just feeling wrong this isn't fair yeah um and i obviously wasn't even thinking in like legal terms or like how or if it was illegal but it just felt unfair and i wanted to like interrogate a little bit and i think that's what ultimately led me to be a a sociology major in college yeah so what would you say was like the first year that you that you felt not only comfortable in your identity as a black man, but uh, where you you really started to, I guess, further solidify it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd say it definitely came around my junior year of college. Um, That's where everything kind of clicked for me. Um, I had you know, kind of struggled early in college. I uh, had a pretty average GPA, but had worked really hard my uh, sophomore and the beginning of my junior year into my senior year. And so my GPA was where I wasn't wanted to be. Social life was amazing. I was really, you know, deep in the fabric of the AUC community in Atlanta. Atlanta was feeling like more like home than it ever had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just really caught my stride and um, everything was going good. Um, yeah. Yes. So would you say that like why junior year? Do, do you just think like age wise it was? Yeah, it was just definitely an age maturity thing. And I think like the type of environment Morehouse is and the kind of HBCU environment was still fairly new to me. Like I said, I, I was kind of in that environment. I grew up in that environment like at home. But as far as academically, mm-hmm. um, I really didn't get that experience of learning around a bunch of black people until high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then it was kind of filtered to an extent. Um, but when I got to college, it was just like. You know, like I said, I was taking classes at Morehouse, at Spelman, really enjoying myself. I was doing a lot of stuff off campus and in, in the Atlanta community. And yeah, junior is probably when I felt just the most established. I was, you know, working. Um, I was also doing the school thing. I was doing like local, like I was invo- heavily involved in the Atlanta community. I think that's kind of why it felt like 
that was when things started clicking. Do you do you feel as if maybe that experience and being in Atlanta, um, do you feel like it kind of, I guess, changed how you perceived yourself as an individual versus when you were in North Carolina or did it just further solidify it? Um, hmm. That's a really good question. Never really thought about that. Um, I want to say it further solidified it. That's the easy answer. Um, but I definitely feel like it changed it um, mm. in ways that maybe I, I'm not going to be able to process during this interview. Yeah. Um, this is definitely <laughs> something I'll think about more. But yeah, I think it was, it, it definitely changed it um, because in Raleigh, um, it was always, um, you, know, you know, especially in high school when everybody saw I was going to go to college, when I was doing well, mm-hmm. heavily involved in student government, basketball team, that kind of stuff, you know, like just the popular black guy who does well in school and everything's good. I got to Morehouse and I remember when I first got to Morehouse, one of the, um, when I went for that same visit, we met uh, an alum who was working in the mall and he called me out. He was telling me about Morehouse. And so we just randomly met him at the store. My grandmother was just like so excited that I was down there for this college visit. She saw a young black guy at this mall that's like 20 minutes outside the city. And she was like, "Um, we're here because my my grandson is about to go to Morehouse. He was Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's crazy. That's where I went. So then it started this conversation. He was like, you can go to Morehouse. He was like, no, he was like, let me tell you this. You were probably high school prom king. You probably played a sport. You're a super cool black guy. And everybody started laughing. I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, this is crazy. And then he was like, yeah, he's like, when you go to Warehouse, that's everyone. Yeah. He was like, it's no mm-hmm. longer just you. He's like, you're special, but you're not. Like, yeah. and he gave it to me real. It was funny. I don't know who this guy is. Never met him again after that. We didn't really connect after that. But that was like, really like kind of shook me up. And mm-hmm. when I got there, that's what it was. It was a bunch of really, really, and that was a great thing though. It was like a bunch of really cool black guys who were, I mean, cause I think there's like this false dichotomy. We think that like black people, there's all these unproven and combated like theories about black people not wanting to be smart, how it's not cool to be smart when you're black and yeah. all those type of myths and theories and pseudoscience that floats around our, com- our communities. But I got down there and it really disproved it. I was like, I'm around some of the coolest people I ever met and they're the most brilliant people I've ever met. And it just made me feel a lot more comfortable being myself and expressing myself in all types of ways. So Nice. Now, what was your transition like uh, going, going to Harvard? Super rough. Um, so I went to Harvard to get my master's in ed policy. Um, and so just to start, most ed policy programs, most people who are in those programs are like have a few years of work experience. So I was on the founding board of a charter school when I was in college. Okay. That's what got me interested in education in Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. We started a charter school and that's what got me interested in education. Um, and so I knew I wanted to learn more about it before going to law school. Law school was always in the plan. Oh, okay. um, ed school kind of popped up around sophomore year when the charter school stuff started to pick up and I just wanted to know more. Um, so I chose between like Harvard and a couple other schools and really liked this place when I visited. And I don't think they false sold me any dreams. I just don't think I was, you know, really prepared for what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and came here and I like to tell people I was a triple minority, not like to tell people I really was because ed school was about 70% women. Um, so mm-hmm. as a male, I was a minority. Um, the average age of an ed school student is like 27 and I was like 21. Yeah. So I'm the youngest person in every one of my classes, making me a minority there. And then of course I'm black. So the way that affected classroom and me in the classroom was that, um, so I already dealing with imposter syndrome, which a lot of people, especially minorities feel like battle places like this. As in they're not supposed to be. Yeah. It's like, it's like phantom feeling like, you know, like you're going to get a call that says they made a mistake on your application. (laughs) You're actually Uh not supposed to be a, Harvard Mm -hmm. um, and that you're not smart enough. You're not good enough that, you know, there's all this conversation around affirmative. The only reason you're here is affirmative action. You know, like those type of thoughts kind of linger and they haunt you in a way. 
Um, and it makes you feel like it kind of internalizes this feeling of inadequacy um, and the way that manifests is specifically in the classroom. You just feel like you want to say something, but it's not going to sound as smart as the person who says something before you or that the teacher isn't going to respond. The professor isn't going to respond well to what you said. And so in ed school specifically, where a lot of it is built around collaboration and mm-hmm. a lot of discussion, I mean, because education is something we still haven't got right in this country. Like no. there is no right answer. And so a lot of times these are just people pontificating or just talking about their experiences or what they think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of makes it challenging when you think that your opinion isn't as valid as other people because of the color of your skin or because of a lack of ability um, Mm -hmm. that has kind of been embedded. Um, And so, yeah, I was like not speaking in class. Really, I feel like not getting my money's worth one, but not making the most of my ed school experience. And I struggled with that early on. Um, But I talked to some professors, um, specifically to some black professors Mm -hmm. um, who had, you know, made their offices safe spaces for black students. Um, I joined the Black Graduate Student Alliance here at the law at the actually it's university wide. So it was at all of the Harvard different graduate schools. Okay. And that was really cool. Um, we met up pretty much every week for Tipsy Tuesday and got to know the Boston Tipsy community. Tipsy Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, everybody wasn't getting like rocket blasted every Tuesday. Yeah. Some people didn't drink at all. But it was cool to like know every Tuesday you were going to see some other black faces and mm-hmm. talk about like all the crazy stuff that was going on on campus and things like that. So that was good for me. Um, and I eventually like found my flow, um, caught the wave and, and like around second semester was a lot better. Um, I was also working at the time. And so I was just being pulled every which way. Um, I made the terrible mistake of applying to law school while in grad school. So on top of a full course load and getting adjusted. And then so another reason this adjustment was really hard and this sounds like really childish, but it was the weather. Um, I'm from the South. It's cold as hell out here. And yeah, I was experiencing (laughs) literally the coldest days of my life. And I told my mom kind of jokingly and kind of flippantly, but I think it was really real. I was like, I'm I'm suffering from seasonal effect of this like mm-hmm. I really feel depressed when I wake up in the morning and it's gloomy outside and it's 10 degrees with a you know a negative two degree wind chill, wind chill. like yeah it was like <laughs> and I, it was really hard for me to get up and go to class and j- whatever and so um all of that being said like I said I found my way out of it um thanks to you know the professor and thanks to the people I met here but also um, big thanks to my family and friends like that's what I was talking about the times when they would hit me up and you know like everybody thinks I'm just doing well because I'm at Harvard how can I not be doing well mm-hmm. but like I said I was really struggling with what I think was one of the most stressful times in my life, just trying to balance law school applications. I was studying for the LSAT, which is like obviously of really big importance um, if you're trying to go to law school. Absolutely. Um, I was getting adjusted here and trying to find my foot in and I was thinking about other options like what if I didn't go to law school what would I do um, mm-hmm. job wise and education being 22 well that time yeah 22 with mm-hmm. no experience and this degree but no really experience to back it besides being on the board of a charter school I never taught I never did any you know heavy policy work so I felt like I was trapped um, but I knew I wanted to go to law school didn't know if my LSAT was going to be good enough so all that to say a lot of stuff swirling um, in the midst of you know five degree blizzard weather um, and it just was a terrible combination but like I said, thanks to my family, my friends, and my faith, I was able to make it out. That's really, really dope. Yeah. Um, and thinking of that now, like, like so, the picture in Black History Month with you up on. Uh, uh, I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> so, kind of like, how did that? How did that even come yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting story. I was actually, <laughs> um, I met a guy while I was working a track karaoke event who um, actually has a really good event. You should check out if you haven't heard of it already. Called Henny Palooza. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes, I have. So, so. The, so Loki, who's our host for Trap Karaoke, he's one of the founders of Henny Palooza with his other guy Cam and some other guys. But anyway, mm-hmm. I didn't know Cam before, but he was like, "Yo." 
you were in that picture with that bottle of Hennessy, weren't you? And I was like, yeah. He was like, yo, salute. Well, <laughs> it's funny how many people Just for me. clarification, so Jonathan is literally... He, he's in a picture that oh, yeah. someone unnamed took. <laughs> yeah. And he is standing with a very large bottle that of Hennessy. That person is Leland Shelton, by the way. <laughs> and I'll get to why that's important to the story. Yeah. I'm, I'm standing with a, yeah, like a handle of Hennessy on top of the Harvard Law sign. During Black History Month, we had already decided, we had talked about it in January, how we were all the black guys that can get together and put on do-rags and take a picture in front of the Harvard sign, which would have been even more epic. Yeah. It was just too hard to corral everybody <laughs> with all the different schedules. Uh-huh. And so then we're like, yo, we're going to like get Popeyes and eat chicken top of the Hennessy sign. Like, something super, super duper black for black. Like, it's our last black history month while we're students. Like, let's do something crazy. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was we actually went on a ski trip. All the black students went on a ski trip. And so when we came back, the bus dropped us off there and we still had leftover liquor from the ski trip. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even my idea. So this is the untold story. And I wasn't the first person to take the picture. Leland actually. So... Aaron Francis actually thought of taking the picture. Leland was the first one to take the picture. I was the second, but since I posted it and said I was the first, I was the first. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was the first person to post. You Columbus did. Uh, yeah, I Columbus. Well, not really but because they were the same race. True, true, so true, I kind of uh, what's, what's the equivalent? Like, I, don't I don't know. know. I want to call it Don Limiting. I'm not sure how that affects oh. it, but uh, I just yeah. Anyway, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I I was the first to go viral doing it but Leland mm-hmm. probably he preceded me by like 30 seconds so <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and so um I loved it yeah like, have you gotten any like negative backlash oh heck yeah I've gotten a lot of mixed That's feedback crazy. and I think a lot of people I mean it's it, and so I've gotten straight up negative feedback like I, I'm the one thing about being public on Twitter is that anyone can DM me which is uh, mm. a gift and a, actually you know what I call it a gift and a curse it's really just a curse a I don't curse know why I still do it yeah it's just a curse <laughs> and a curse it's just like that, nothing good comes out of it like my DMs are absolutely ridiculous and um, and every day they're ridiculous it's crazy how much people won't say anything to you on your, on your like in your mentions but they'll feel like at liberty to go in your DMs that's like, wild like, I get some wild wild stuff so anyway um, got some positive and negative feedback, but what's also been interesting, especially like who I am, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, and because early on, I entertain notions of like getting straight into politics. So like, oh, you're never going to be able to run for anything. You got a picture of a bottle of Hennessy on top of the Harvard Law sign. I'm like, look, man, like, first of all, I don't see myself getting into politics anytime soon. Um, and if I do, it'll be way, way, way later in life where one, Twitter won't be relevant. And two, everyone will have a picture of something that is kind of that way. And plus, yeah. all of that aside, this is who I am. Am. Exactly. Like, uh, beyond any of that, if someone is not going to vote for me because as a as a law school student, I took a picture on a sign with a bottle of Hennessy, a, a liquor that I will tell you that I drink, like then that's crazy. That's that's like, and I don't know if I would want to be that. I don't. I would want to be that politician that felt like I had to hide that much of myself in exactly. order to be electable. If we can't be people and run for office, then I don't think I need to be in office. And I was kind of kind of jaded by the whole thought of going into politics because of some other experiences I've had, kind of interning um, in mayor's offices and. Mm. Um, and that didn't help. But then like when I get messages like this, it just makes me further feel like, no, like I'm, I'm all about being myself, my authentic self, like especially now, like all of the time. I'm at this place where I'm the most comfortable with who I am, what I have to say. I'm That's not filtering dope. what I have to say for really anybody, yeah. um, which is also a good and bad thing. Um, but but yeah, and it was just like, that was like where I draw, drew the line because I thought about it and I was like, should I post this? And like, yeah, my mom might feel some type of way about it. Um, but I was like, it's, it's who I am and I'm going to take the picture because I think it's funny and, uh, and it's who I am. If I feel like if you can be an elected official and 
have been involved in drugs, I don't understand what. The, and and, yeah, and we like, have had presidents, right? Who who have you know? You go back in their history. God. Yeah, we're about to elect Donald Trump. I'm not concerned about my Please. bottle of Hennessy. Exactly. Um. So yeah, that that was been the interesting. So I say all that to say, I got a lot of messages from friends that were like, "Yo, you need to think about this." Really. And I'm like, yeah, no, I appreciate you looking out for me, but I got this. Like I'm like I was kind of I was I was offended. I was like I'm offended that you would think that I wouldn't be this thoughtful. Like yeah. that what you're saying is just something that I process before. I, like I just posted this picture. It was going to be like, oh, I need, I, I can like, so I, you actually, this is also funny when I was an undergrad and I was still thinking about politics, I used to do this thing where I would delete my tweets every month. So mm-hmm. if you look at my Twitter, like I wouldn't obviously wouldn't recommend, recommend this to anyone, but my tweets stopped in like 2011, even though I've been on Twitter since like 2009, because I literally every month used to just completely clean my Twitter. And I wasn't even talking crazy then. It was just like, oh, this fear of politics. Yeah. And you know, something I said coming back to bite me now, it's like, whatever, if you find it, you got me. Like I haven't said anything that I wouldn't step in front of a mic in front of an audience and say again um the racy things that i say the things that seem on the edge i stand by them 100 percent. and I don't, I'm, I'm thoughtful about what i say um, yeah. and because i'm thoughtful on the front end i'm not worried on the back end about the backlash i would rather live in a world where my elected official right and or just like accountant like whoever right can in, enjoys a bottle be of a Hennessy. Yeah, just be themselves. <laughs> yeah. And then you think of the, the double standard. So I also talked to my friend about this. I was like, imagine if I had a bottle of Moscato or some wine. Or, it's also the fact that it's Hennessy. That's like, true. I feel like if I was like, if this picture was a bunch of preppy white girls with wine bottles, no one would say anything. Very but it's because a black man with a beer with a bottle of Hennessy. Now it's like, oh, holy yeah. crap. <laughs> like, On the Harvard Law yeah. sign at that. Yeah, yeah. forget. I mean, yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. No, I actually, I had an interesting experience. I was at a uh, uh, King. I am King. Do you know the group? I am King. There are three uh-uh. women. They're really, really dope. I suggest that you listen to them. In Boston? No, I oh. I saw they were in a concert in New York. Okay. Um and uh one of the people that we knew there, it was like some some of my coworkers slash friends went and I guess she had run into someone who she knew, uh, who worked like closely with the group. <laughs> and I remember she had like a glass of Hennessy and she was like, Oh, does anyone want this? And I think folks said no or whatever. And I was like, Oh, like like do you not like Hennessy? Honestly, I'm still surprised when people say they don't like Hennessy. Right. I, I do understand if, if someone's like, well, I don't drink brown liquor. It's like, well, okay, like, do you, yeah. I guess. But anyways, but no, she specifically, she specifically was like, no, like, like, I don't do Hennessy. Like, I'm grown. And it's like, do you realize yeah. that a lot of these movies, like, with these, like, men, these very white pasty men are, like, drinking cognac? That's Hennessy, Hennessy y'all. Yeah, right, right. It's like <laughs> once people, once black people start liking it, we can't like it anymore. Yeah. Um, I have the quick plug. This is totally unrelated, but you have to have Hennessy and Chick Fil A lemonade. A lot of people I'm think that's crazy. Try no, that. I promise it's gonna change it. Please text me as soon as you do. Chick Fil A um, lemonade. You have to do Chick Fil A. You have to do Chick Fil A. It's the I, I sugar. Need you to explain this. Yeah, it's the sugar balance. Um, it is the <laughs> best. I'm telling you, it's the best mixer ever. Like you probably fill it with like you can do half and half, and you will. It'll, it's gonna be the best drink you've had in years. I'm excited. Chick fil A lemonade Hennessy. It's gotten to the point where when I go to New York, usually what I do, because there's no Chick fil A in Boston, yeah. there's one like 45 minutes away now with us. I get a gallon of Chick fil A lemonade. You can get it by the <laughs> gallon. It's like, it's like something ridiculous, like $9. But you can get a, a gallon of Chick fil A lemonade. And so last time I was in New York, me and my boys were partying. And I got two gallons and we just got Hennessy and did it up. I'm gonna have to do it. You're gonna have to. You gotta try it. I'm excited. Yeah. Um. So, I feel like you do so many different things. Like I do. 
you, I'm very scatterbrained. Yeah. And that leads to me being hands and feet in a lot of things. You, you know, you're involved in trap karaoke. You're also a student, you know, here at Harvard, yeah. as well as you're you're going to be, you know, transitioning into your career. Right. Thinking of all that, like, like what 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 do you think kind of ties everything together? If, if, if there is one thing. I was about to say, I don't know if there is anything. It's just like, like I said, I'm just naturally a scatterbrained person. There's a mm-hmm. lot of things that I'm interested in. Like, we haven't talked about all the things that I'm doing. I don't advise that we do. And I think I think a lot of people are like that. Though. I don't yeah. think I'm special in that respect. I mean, you got this podcast. You're a student. You're also a professional. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's just all of us have these different, um, these different faces, these different things that we're involved in. And I'm following a lot of passions, a lot of things that I haven't really talked about that I'm working on that I hope take off. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, these are the things that get me up in the morning that make life worth living um these all these different journeys and paths and you know the one i'm going on now is probably the most scary i'm about to take the bar and go to you know go into the corporate law law firm life um yeah which is very restrictive and and very different i'm excited for it it's gonna be a challenge and and i like that aspect of it but it's gonna be a lot different i've talked to you about how i'm gonna have to like you know fade away from twitter a little bit Mm -hmm. or not a little bit a lot and um just adopt a a whole different lifestyle than what i've lived pretty much the last all my life really um and how much free time that i have but um i'm excited for it um and 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 ready for it on your journey like discovering who you are as a person and like your sense of self and then kind of having to i guess do that again Mm -hmm. in your graduate studies like what mistakes if any do you think you've made along the way and and thinking of a mistake as like something that we just all have to go through when we're going through a process yeah i mean i'm head swirling right now i'm the first to admit that i made so so many mistakes so many mistakes um i always say i wouldn't change anything about my past because Mm -hmm. i wouldn't change anything about my present i feel like life is a domino effect you know, like you, if I went back in time and changed something there, something right now wouldn't be the same. And I don't want to risk that. Yeah. But at the same time, there's been so many states, like every stage of my life, I can think of mistakes that I've made and mistakes that I've made and learned from though. I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of not making the same mistake twice. Mm -hmm. Um, and so whether that has to do with like professional wise, like career wise, just general life wise, relationship wise, just like a lot, a lot, I made like a lot, a lot, a lot of mistakes. Um, trying to think of specific examples um there's just so many i use a i use a joke with my friends and i was like whatever my age was like so like 21 that means i can make 21 mistakes a day <laughs> um, and now, now i'm 25 i get to make at least 25 mistakes a day and i give myself all 25 there you go. um even today like i can think of things that i did i was like wow if i could do this differently i would have definitely done it differently um hmm a specific one that's like appropriate or maybe even one that like helps you learn the most about a situation yeah. or about like just just you learning and growing in your own identity i think the bit so this is kind of like circular and maybe not direct to the question but i think my biggest mistake has been self-doubt mm-hmm. um it's been allowing myself at certain times to feel so consumed by outward impressions of who I am mm-hmm. or what I'm doing, um, what I'm able to accomplish, my abilities, my talent. I've, I've allowed that to affect me in ways that I don't think, like I, I like to say now that I'm, I don't care what people think. That wasn't always the case. It's hard to do um, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. Um, and so, yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, the pressure of 
uh, how what I was going to do was going to make other people feel or how they were going to react to things that I was doing or things that I said or mm-hmm. the way that I acted. That definitely influenced my life in ways that it shouldn't have at a, at a bunch of different stages. Um, and I can think of a bunch of different examples of where I should have just like followed my heart, did what I thought was best rather than what I felt was going to be the most palatable or the most easy to to understand for other people yeah um um just a lot of a lot of different junctures i've i've um gone through these thought processes where i maybe didn't do what i felt was best for me and what i felt and instead did what i felt was best for people around me um and i don't know if those are the right decision i'm living with those decisions now yeah um and i'm working through them and like i said i don't regret anything that i've done because i'm just at a place where i'm just generally like very very happy with like just life right now i'm excited about everything that's about to happen um but those are definitely times where I feel like there are definitely times I can think about where I feel like if it was the the me from now, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't have acted in that way. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of uh, the idea that the universe unfolds just as it should. Right. Always. Yeah. I, I, one of my favorite quotes, everything is OK in the end. And if it's not OK, it's not the end. Like that's dope. Yeah, I always feel that that gives me so much comfort. Yeah. Like if things are going, if things aren't going okay. Um, another really good quote I love is just, um, uh, happiness is, I want to get it exactly right. Um, it's, oh my God. Now, now I'm not going to remember <laughs> it. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes. Um, oh, it's the, this one word that I'm looking for that I'm about to get wrong, but it's like, um, happiness is like stress and work clothes mm. or something like that. Yeah. Stress and work clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, just go back to the We're first one. We're going to have to add that to the, to, to, yeah. to the show notes. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no go, back, go back to the first one. But yeah, everything is okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. If you just always have this belief that if you're going through something, you're truly going through something. Yeah. And on the other side is what you, where you're supposed to be and what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I fundamentally believe it. So something that we talked about earlier, we mentioned future, <laughs> and I know that you have a a deep look at a deep seated love for yeah. future. So yeah. when when did that happen? When did it that start? In undergrad. So I, as you know, I went to college in Atlanta, and so future was on the scene for us way before. That's it became very a true. National artist. So yeah, that has been the coolest thing. Is like I felt like. I, to an extent and I think like Future's Rise has been kind of meteoric in like the last year and a half he's just kind of like taken off mm-hmm. but for a certain at a certain stage and for a certain while I felt like I was growing with him yeah like as I got it as I got out of Atlanta his music started to leave Atlanta mm-hmm. and so I was putting my friends onto him while I was in Atlanta and then when I left and then it got to this point where people had heard about him outside of Atlanta I'm like oh this is cool y'all know who he is now and he started you know went through the whole phase where he was doing songs with Sierra and a bunch of other like R&B slash pop artists and that kind of took off because when I was when I was telling people about like astronaut status and FBG the movie and these mixtapes you probably never heard of mm-hmm. full of like future songs that people still future fans still don't even know that's when people ask me to like rank his mixtapes and stuff I'm like how far back do you want to start because I yeah. bet you you don't even know where this begins <laughs> um, but yeah it's just a lot to do with like that like seeing a lot of my stuff and there's like a lot of like little lyrics I can think about that like related to different points in my life Mm -hmm. Um, and so just to see where he is now it's kind of like where I am where I've like completely caught my stride I'm confident in myself Um, I think that's what's been the most interesting thing about Future I don't think we've seen an artist outside of maybe 50 Cent who's been 
as like just raw. He isn't filtered. Yeah. His music is about, um, for the most part, about success, but the things that come with um, his level of success, his brand of success, which is, you know, drugs or women, uh, crazy club outings. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, it's not a, it's not at all like filtered. It's not like music that you would think that the preppy Harvard white kid will listen to, but you walk by these frat houses and they're banging they future nowadays. Do. So that type of success for an artist like him, you don't see like hood rappers make that type of, make those type of strides. Like yeah. you'll never see like Yo Gotti make it, and I love Yo Gotti. You'll never see him break into the mainstream like Future. Just talking about Yo Gotti or, today. Uh, Nipsey Hussle, who also is on some like just oh, really deep. I love Nipsey Hussle. Yeah, well, like it's one of my he's one of my top ten rappers. Like, yeah. but really talks about some shit that a lot of people just aren't gonna relate to, and so mm-hmm. it's not gonna sell him. Like, I think he's comfortable. He's at a stage in his career. He's comfortable not going like super mainstream. Exactly. And Future, I don't even know if Future wanted that for himself. It was just like that terror mixtapes for some reason it just stuck, and it had a lot to do with the production, mm-hmm. his lyrics, how hard he works just a sheer volume of, of content he was putting out but he's reached a level of success at this point that I think is kind of unprecedented for an artist who raps about and raps in the way that he has um yeah I don't I don't know if we've seen it before besides like I said maybe 50 Cent but even he started singing lullabies at one point in his career and he was one of the first rappers to really be like singing on his own hook so even that was like kind of yeah. different future's just bars so you kind of talked about a little bit. How do you think that's influenced how you now yeah. embrace your blackness? Yeah, like, and that that is a big part of it. I think one of the one of my favorite songs ever is Future's March Madness. You made a video to it. I, I saw it. Uh, yeah, so I made a I made a video. Um, wait, which video are you talking about? So there was a four part video where um, there were clips from like the NBA. Oh right. Oh no no no. They, okay, so yeah, that was a video I made recently. I did redid NCAA does one shining moments after every NCAA championship. So college okay. basketball, they have the championship, and then right after they cut to this video that is just like a replay of all the tournament, the March Madness tournament, um, and it's to a song called One Shining Moment, and it's been like that as long as I can remember. I always said that ever since March Madness dropped, the song is called March Madness. The tournament is called March Madness. Yeah. That should have been the song. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I redid the video and put the one shining moment video to the actual song March Madness and it matches like perfectly it matches perfectly and it makes the video I caught the chills the first time I watched it I thought I did it on this bootleg free internet editing service a service I don't have any experience doing anything like that but I just felt like for the culture it like needed to be done Um, but before that last summer I actually got the interesting opportunity Um, I was reached out to by some of Mark Lamont Hills people when he still did Huff Post Live I saw this and he was interviewing Future as part of the the, um, build up for DS2 and so they asked me if I wanted to be on and ask future questions. I'm like, heck yeah, I do. <laughs> and so I'll never forget. This is also funny. I actually left work early at my corporate law firm. <laughs> and so I didn't, I don't, you don't have any, like anybody I had to answer to. I had gotten like most of my work done for the yeah. cases that I was working on. But my office mates were like, where are you going? I was like, oh, I got to go like do this interview. And I guess they thought maybe I was interviewing for a clerkship or for a, another job or something. <laughs> so like, like oh, okay. No. But <laughs> so I do the interview and I come back in the office the next morning and there are sticky notes on my computer on both of this I have two screens both of my screens and they're like people had drawn like stick figures of me asking future questions it was like <laughs> future I love you like all this 
Like some somebody had told somebody so, that that's where I went. Somebody got the land. Somebody, yeah. and then like everybody knew when I got back. But it was cool. I got to tell Future that I thought March Madness was a gospel song and that he was my favorite artist. And that's dope. It was really really cool. So yeah, and he's headlining uh, the Broccoli City Festival in two weeks in DC. Where yes. we'll also have a stage. So I'm hoping to run into him there. And even if I don't, I'll definitely be there for the concert. Nice. You was yeah. in Trap Karaoke, correct? Yeah, Trap Karaoke is we're gonna have a stage at Broccoli Fest um, for I think we're gonna do like a two hour set. So that would be cool. It was our first time doing a festival. So that that's be very dope. Really cool. Um, kind of uh, b- before we wrap up, I, yeah. I always have this question like when thinking about identity. Right. Um, so obviously, I'm a woman, <laughs> you're a man. Do you, or rather, what's your take on embracing yourself fully? But also, I guess, finding ways to create spaces for women of color to embrace themselves fully, too. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's something that, um, so I've had to, grown up in the South um, and grown up in a deeply, you know, black Christian conservative family and community. Mm-hmm. I've had to unlearn a lot of things. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot of things that I look at, the ways that I thought pre-Morehouse, even during Morehouse. Um things that I've said to people, things that I thought it's just been, it, it pains me to think about. Um, and I've, like I said, just had to unlearn a lot and learn a lot. Um, and one thing that I think I struggle with all the way, you know, up until grad school was like acknowledging, um, patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And it, it was hard for me to think about, so I'm always the one to, I can easily identify how I'm oppressed and how as a black man in society, structurally, um, this world works in ways that, you know, don't benefit me one. And that two kind of like, like put my oppression into a structure. Um, and so I think that that was easy for me to grasp. What was hard for me to grasp was how me being a male, um, meant that I also benefited from that structure in Mm -hmm. ways that I wouldn't acknowledge. So I'll never forget. Um, this was first brought to my attention by my ex when we were talking about within the firm culture and some of the relationships that I had with different partners at the law firm who hadn't extended themselves to her in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, and she felt like it had a lot to do with the fact because she was a woman and I kind of like played off. I was like, no, it's not because of that. It's because I'm always super talkative at the receptions and it's because of the, and I wasn't really thinking about the way, like, why did I feel comfortable talking more or about these things that, because they wanted to talk about, you know, sports and about things that were kind of like, you know, gendered towards like yeah, being a male, gender like specific, specific mm-hmm. conversations. Yeah. Right. So, um, I didn't really think about that. And it wasn't until, like I said, she just pressed me on it. Like time after time again, she would make me see, she would make it very real about how me being a male was, um, benefiting me or, you know, hurting her in certain situations. Um, and that was what really illuminated for me and where the light, you know, turned on. And so I, I am very conscious of that now. Um, uh, so one example is we were recently um, going through something here at the law school, um, something that's kind of confidential. So I won't, I'll talk about it around like the edges. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we were deciding how to um, uh, sanction or for lack of better terms, or um, what would be the proper recourse for someone who was accused of something um, and for which we didn't know whether they had done it or not. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget this moment came while we were talking and it was me and there were four other guys that were the ones who were supposed to decide. 
And I thought about just how important it, it would be to have uh, at least one woman voice her opinion Absolutely. on the matter. And so we went through this long process and talked on the phone for hours. And then we kind of like backtracked, went back to the beginning and we inserted some women's voices and it totally changed the way we thought about the problem and what we thought was appropriate, the appropriate outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one way recently that I kind of worked that into, you know, this new and improved Jonathan that is more conscious of his male privilege. It's something I'm still working on, though. Um, Very dope. Yeah. So the upcoming projects, what do you have coming up? Um, what are you graduation. excited about? Graduation, hey. graduation, graduation. That is my <laughs> only project. I got finals that I have not been taking seriously. The graduation and The project. walls are crashing and <laughs> I am about to, I just got to my, like, I just got my grandma's ticket. My mom and dad have been had theirs. Oh. So everybody's coming, which means that now I definitely have to graduate on time. Absolutely. And so, um, so yeah, I just got to take finals seriously. So I graduated May 26th. Excited about that. But then after that, um, people call graduation like the light at the end of the tunnel. But when you're in law school, it doesn't work like that. Because then you go into bar study immediately. Mm-hmm. And then right after bar study, you go into this career where you're working yeah. a billion hours. So there's really no light coming up. Graduation is like a flash of light. It's like a hole in the tunnel where you can see, <laughs> that, there, uh, the see that there is a light. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily the light. So I'm excited about that. But then, yeah, um, it's going to be a great summer for trap karaoke. I wish that I could, you know, be more on the scene. Uh, I'll be watching it from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of great shows. We got a show um, in June, I believe June 2nd, our first R&B trap karaoke in New York City. Dope. Um, if I'm pretty sure it's sold out. If it's not, we're in the last few tickets. Definitely check that out. Um, What's the date again? June second. June second, um, and I you believe. already think it may be sold out? I mean, our shows now are selling out within hours. Oh my god! Yeah, um, that's when we move into bigger venues, but still they're selling out. Um, we, j- I mean, like I said, we went to L.A. and Oakland in January, sold them out like quickly. So we came right back a couple weeks ago and sold out again really quickly. Um, and so, but we're also doing the Broccoli City Festival. Um, that's also sold out. But if you're coming, check us out. Mm-hmm. We're doing a show at Blind Juano the night before. Um, we've also set our dates for L.A. again and Chicago later on this summer and Oakland. Um, so check our website for that. Um, that's pretty much it. With Chapter. I mean, there'll be more days and outs over the summer. We're going to be doing a lot of shows this summer, so definitely stay tuned to the Twitter and website. But outside of that, I'm just I, I'm, I don't have any other projects coming up. This is graduation and starting work. Um, Very dope. And starting this uh, this new chapter of life. Um, so yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank Jonathan. you for having me. Thank you for reaching that. out. Um, it's good to see other young black minority, I mean, young black minorities, young black people um, <laughs> doing things that they're passionate about. Um, and you know, I think what you're doing is important because I think it's easy easy to talk about success and tell everybody these are the th- 33 ways I think that you can be successful. It's harder for people to be introspective and think about the things they would have done differently um, and how their failures ultimately contributed to their success. Um, and those hearing those stories are important for people who are hoping to one follow in your footsteps or do anything um, and are face with failure. All of us face it. Not a lot of us are upfront about how we dealt with it and yeah. how we overcame it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, good Thank work. you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Shout out to Delvin Beats and the Bad Decisions Collective for our musical tunes and creator Kay and Andrea for our logos. Production and editing on today's episode was done by myself. Um, a couple of things. One, please make sure to download, like, share, subscribe, and also give uh, the podcast a review if you can. Um, you can find episodes on our site, firstyearproject.com, iTunes, 
iTunes and SoundCloud, but especially that positive review on iTunes. It's really, really helpful for the show. So we certainly appreciate you taking the time to do that. Second thing, next week uh, there will be a treat that actually involves the first interview that I ever recorded. This was before First Share Project uh was even thought of potentially being a podcast so that and um other cool things will drop next week peace